Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the webinar for SLU guideline changes in New York. My name is Christian Cisan. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. It's so nice we're doing it twice. So we thank maybe the one or two people who joined the 12 p.m. session is now coming for the uh, second version. Uh, that's me. Uh, email address, phone number, and picture. I can't tell actually whether I look better with glasses or without. So if you don't have a question at the end of the webinar, you can leave a comment about that. Today, what we're going to talk about are the new guidelines for determining permanent impairment as it relates to schedule loss of use uh, in New York. We're going to talk about whether they apply prospectively or retroactively or both. Uh, how will they change our practice in terms of helping uh, carriers, employers, self-insureds in defending workers' compensation claims in New York, whether they're good or bad for us, and we'll end with a small Q&A session at the end. And as anybody knows, we do have this little question box you should see on your screen. Uh, you can send in a question live. I'll take a couple at the end. I'm probably not going to get to uh, all of them, and I know that because I was inundated with so many questions at the first session, uh, and I will be reaching out to those people as well. So if, you, my question, if your question is not answered by me at the end, please, please don't worry. I will get back to you. So let's start with our approach. Uh, what we're going to do today is describe the guidelines and provide an overview into what, it, what they mean, what they look like, and how they compare to the past iteration, right? And how that, how, how that goes into effect is really re in relation to practical tips and what we're going to do to implement them, to use them, to apply them, and how to better serve you and create exposures that are as low as possible. And finally, maybe most importantly, I'm gonna talk about where we will need to obtain decisions from a judge, the board panel, or even the appellate division in order to make sure that we have a good understanding about the full impact of these new guidelines. Again, 2018. So I thought it would be best if we start out with a hypothetical, right? Uh, this is going to be based on the 2012 guidelines, which are now not in effect. Um, I do have a, a copy that was sent to you guys earlier this morning. It has the uh, hypothetical outlined for you there if you want to follow along on that end, uh, but they're also on the slide as well. So what we have here is a case with a left knee and a meniscal tear. That meniscal tear was uh, surgically operated on. And we have an average weekly wage of $1,500. The date of accident is January 1st, 2017, which would result in a statutory maximum rate of $864.32. That's going to be used for purposes of this hypothetical as well. And we also have a flexion reduction in range of motion to 110 degrees. Finally, 24 weeks of total disability, so 864.32 per week, were paid as prior benefits. Uh, and obviously, everybody knows that's important when talking about fresh money moving to the claimant at the end. So how do they look in the uh, old guidelines? Well, special consideration for a surgically operated meniscal tear is 7.5 to 10% as a baseline floor. And that's the special consideration for that diagnosis and operation. So without doing anything, without assessing range of motion loss, you're going to be looking at that minimum. Now, in our hypothetical, we also talked about 20 percent, uh, which is based on the 110 degrees of flexion loss. And what happens is we just add the two together to come to 30 percent. And I chose 10 instead of 7.5 percent because 
We all know that a claimant's doctor is not gonna short him or her by picking 7.5 instead of 10. 30% schedule of a leg is 30% of 288 weeks, which comes out to 86.4. Now the total indemnity, indemnity, the gross value of that award would be a little under $75,000. And if we take credit for the payments made, that will result in net money moving of $53,934 and change. So I want you to remember that number uh, when we get to uh, the end example, which is gonna discuss how the same case applies with the 2008, 2018 guidelines. Now these are the, the uh, new guidelines. It's 64 pages. Uh, it did come out in, as you can see, in November 22nd, 2017. We did provide a link to uh, access these on the board website. Uh, but of course, if you're having any trouble accessing them, we'll uh, provide you that uh, information directly. Uh, November 22nd, this iteration came out after the more employer-friendly iteration came out in September of last year and was a response to essentially the comments and protests from both sides, but mostly the claimant side as to the issues and problems with the September draft. So this uh, was a little bit of light reading during my Thanksgiving holiday. Um, and I've really made sure that uh, I know as much as I can about it to help all of you here today. Okay, so what we wanna start off with is how we even get to a schedule loss of use, right? By law, in a case that does not involve a surgery or a fracture, a claimant cannot reach maximum medical improvement until six months after the date of accident. So what do we use this for? Essentially, if you get that C4.3, finding MMI before that six month timeline, then you, your attorney should be requesting preclusion of that report. Uh, you can always agree that MMI has been reached, but if one side is arguing for it and another side is not, if it's before that six month timeline, that report should be precluded. It's also a good, uh, it's a good thing to know when you're scheduling the IME for MMI, right? You don't wanna uh, waste resources on that particular uh, topic or, or essentially uh, the exam if you know that you haven't reached that six month timeline, unless you're doing it for a medical or a temporary disability issue. Medical impairment findings is uh, you know, a point I put in there just to make it clear that obviously a judge is not going to find MMI on his own. He needs to be able to rely on at least one medical report from either side. Okay, so in the September iteration of the guidelines, the ones that were supposed to come about because of the bill in April of last year, had a bunch of regulations that the board was going to uh, adopt once January 1st, 2018 uh, had passed. And a lot of them were beneficial to employers. There was that provision that the claimant had to fill out an SLU-1, which is a special intake form for schedule loss of use that would allow us to determine, are you doing your pre-accident job at full duty with no restrictions? Are you making the same amount of money? Uh, can you do everything that you could have done prior to the accident? We don't actually know what was going to be on that form, but just the fact that it was in going to be in effect possibly would have helped us going forward. That is gone, so really the only uh, regulation that's going to be adopted in addition to these 2018 guidelines is the fact that the board must now use these 2018 guidelines. So that's really just to underscore the change from the September draft to the November draft. The second bullet point I have here for you on this slide is just basically saying that once January 1st, 2018 hits, we're not gonna be applying those 2012 guidelines. But there is a caveat, and I'm gonna get to that. 
like I said, the new guidelines are going to apply to current cases and it might change how you actually get to the final opinion, but it's not going to change how you calculate the number of weeks, right? So which guideline applies? Well, if the first SLU evaluation occurs today, for example, or next week, anytime after January 1st, 2018, then that provider should be applying the 2018 guidelines. But if there was one SLU exam taken that took place prior to January 1st, 2018, then the board is going to allow credibility to be established if the provider used the 2012 guidelines. And I think that's a very important distinction because it gives an attorney like me or uh, an examiner or an adjuster, any risk manager that's assessing the case, can they determine, can we determine if the 2012 or 2018 guidelines are going to be better for our particular case? And a lot of the questions that I got in the first webinar talked about whether it's just going to be better across the board. It's, it's hard to really assess that. Uh, we'll get into that as we go forward, uh, but it does give us it does give us an option here to talk about whether this guideline will be better for us now or if we should use the old guidelines and take advantage of a board bulletin number that says that we can use it based on the fact that the first exam happened before January 1st. Okay, clear distinction between SLU and LWEC or loss of wage. That part of the guidelines is not going to change. We still have those crazy, crazy severity rankings that talk about A through Z, uh, or in some cases, A through a letter before Z, uh, that talk about what the severity of the medical impairment is that's permanent, right? Those are still, uh, those have not changed. They're still the same. Uh, this is another example. It's a supplemental table that talks about the point value system in radiculopathy, right? There's going to be certain numerical points that are added in order to get to that severity ranking letter. Those are not changing, and if you have an LWEC case, the 2012 guidelines will still apply. So what did change? Well, it's just the schedule loss of use, as we have been talking about, right? It's essentially loss of range of motion plus special considerations. And we're not entirely happy with this, right, compared to the, the first iteration in September, because loss of range of motion was not as much of an impact in the first iteration, right? It talked about strength, it talked about pain. It talked about different things that correspond to the eventual finding of permanent impairment, if any. But keeping loss of range of motion in place at the same or similar effect that it had with the 2012 guidelines puts us in a predicament because we all know that claimants can affect range of motion in a certain way, right? Uh, active or passive range of motion, there certainly are going to say that something hurts when it gets to a certain level, and whether or not that is true definitely affects us, right? Because even if an IME finds symptom magnification, it's still something that we have to fight. But what we're not gonna do is cry over spilled milk. I'm gonna find the best towel to wipe up the mess, right? So just before we get there, we're gonna talk about SOUs and the calculation, right? As I said before, the schedule number of weeks per body part is not changed. 288 for a leg, 312 for an arm, so on and so forth but how you get to that actual number is going to change a little bit. Some of them are remain the same, but there are some changes that we'll go over. Again, just to show you that the old chart still applies, if you do have a paper copy of the guidelines or even electronic copy in front of you, if you flip to the very last page, it's Appendix A, uh, page 64, and it has the same exact chart that's on the 2012 guidelines and in the statute. 
So how does a doctor find schedule loss of use? We all know that there are a multitude of factors that get us to this point, right? We talk about medical treatment. We talk about improvement. We talk about how much lost time there is. We talk about the severity of the mechanism of the accident. So it's not linear as I have kind of ironed out here, but I feel like in order to best understand it, you can actually go through it in a linear model to see how the doctor is progressing from step A to step Z, right? So the first object, first section are the objectives, right? You want to describe the extremity and figure out how it's being used in relation to permanent impairment. The second part is methods, right? What types of tests are you doing to assess, rate, assess range of motion and whether it affects other body parts or in comparison to a body part? The third section is the range of motion. It talks about what you should be testing, how many times you should be testing it, and if you're doing it objectively or subjectively. Calculating loss of use, it just provides you that formula that we've been talking about that we know uh, near and dear to our heart. We then get to special considerations, and the fifth section is special considerations just based on what the board has outlined, right? I'm gonna go over exactly why I like to go to special considerations first, because it allows you to just make it more clean in terms of the numbers, right? It tells you what your ceiling is and then gives you the add-ons. And finally, the sixth section of every, if most if not all the extremities are amputation, right? Some ex extremities are gonna be given a very, very high floor of schedule loss of use if that limb or extremity is amputated. So very quickly, to run through the uh, six uh, methods or six sections that we just uh, that I just talked about objectives is essentially keeping 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 in place what the body part is making sure that the provider is aware of what the claim is including and what the claim is not including right and it, and this section is probably going to talk about some of the movements that are required for uh, a claimant to be deemed to have deemed uh, maximum medical improvement to have reached maximum medical improvement or to determine pre-accident versus po-accident post-accident status, right? Methods, this actually will help the provider. If they're reading it carefully, they are going to caution the provider to make sure that they are reaching, or they are finding MMI at the legally applicable date, right? So certain injuries might have a longer uh, MMI date. I know we talked about the six month timeline, but that involved no surgeries and no fractures. So, uh, it does help the provider if they're reading the guidelines carefully to talk about whether MMI has been reached or not. And finally, it contains an instruction that the impairment is not based on the severity of the mechanism of injury. And I think that's really important to discuss because we know that a pinky finger strain is a lot different than breaking your leg because you're, you fall, fell off a scaffold, right? Uh, so. When we say that it's not based on the severity of the mechanism of injury, it's not something that we wanna forget about, right? I know that IMEs uh, will certainly take a history of the accident because they've been trained to do so, but we wanna make sure that the mechanism of the injury is being repeated, right? That has to be made aware because honestly, we can't, like we can't avoid that implication, right? We wanna make sure that the schedule loss of use opinion really, really correlates with the severity of injury. I say all the time that the purpose of workers' compensation is to accept the cases that are legitimate and do not deny the ones that aren't, right? So for the acceptable ones, we wanna make sure that that is in place to make sure that the findings really make sense. Okay, range of motion. 
we talked about how uh, how it's maybe providing the normal range of motion versus the contralateral limb. Think of uh, how you can compare, you wanna compare uh, the right leg, if that's the part in the case, to the left leg to make sure that we have a valid basis for a normal or full range of motion. So what the board uh, has repeated in this iteration is essentially to put diagrams in the sections itself, right? It actually helps uh, all of us to understand what a 20 degree loss of dorsiflexion of the wrist is, which the chart here shows. The interesting that I found with this iteration of the guidelines is the recommendation of three repeat measurements with a goniometer, okay? In all the years that I've been doing this, and you will certainly uh, agree with me, this isn't something that is repeated by doctors on either side. So if you're going for a 2018 guidelines application, you wanna make sure that your IME doctor is taking three measurements with a goniometer and comparing them, right? This takes away the idea that it was one good test or it was one bad test. There are three to really compare with each other and determine what's the real loss of use. It's also helpful because if the other side doesn't do that, we can use that as a basis for requesting preclusion, right? So in a, in a case where you just have decided not to settle and you do wanna to go to litigation for that, you wanna make sure that your attorney is barking up this tree because it's an important recommendation in the guidelines. Range of motion being cumulative. This is a little bit different than uh, the, the past iteration of the guidelines, only because the 2012 guidelines didn't really talk about the specific instances when you can add range of motion losses together. So for example, if we go back to this uh, dorsiflexion and palmar flexion, if I have the same accident and the same injuries affect my ability to go like this or like that, I always make the argument that unless the 2012 guidelines specifically articulated that both of those values are cumulative, and in this case could be added together, then we should only really take the higher degree of one of them, and that would decrease your exposure, right? In the 2018 version of the guidelines, they're a little bit more explicit about this, and I think that's very helpful for doctors and practitioners alike. For example, in section 3.4 of the 2018 guidelines, which is the wrist, it says that you can add certain values together, but if the claimant has a marked loss of motion, that total cannot exceed 55%. So we have a little bit more guidance on it. It does make uh, everybody's job a little bit easier because it creates predictability. Section four is about calculating the loss of use. Uh, I talked about special considerations being first there, and this is essentially why. This table provide, is an example of how you can calculate range of motion losses and attribute them to certain percentages of the loss of use. But if you do it that way and then go to special considerations, you're going back to those same medical reports to try to make sure the diagnoses make sense. So I think it's actually better to go to section five first, look at those special considerations and find out what your floor is. Your floor is the baseline minimum of schedule loss of use that that extremity will have. And then once you find that, you can then go to range of motion and do the add-ons. I think that's a lot easier way to do it. Uh, of course, if you're more comfortable going with range of motion and then special considerations, knock yourself out. Okay, so how do these 2018 guidelines help employers carry self-insurance? And this was 
what had essentially drove me to read this thing up and down twice, th three times, four times, and will continue to make me stress over it. In the old guidelines, there were some things that really, really hurt employers. And when I speak to clients, they tell me, for the most part, that their worst cases are the schedule loss of use cases from claimants that don't miss any time from work, right? All the threshold they would have to pass is alleged that a work accident occurred, I hurt my shoulder, they get their MRI finding a rotator cuff tear, and they don't even have to go through surgery, but you're gonna hit that baseline 10%, which I have in the fourth item on that table, right? 2012 guidelines, if you have a rotator cuff tear that's causally related and established, if you don't get surgery, the minimum SLU you're looking at is 10%, and 10% of a 312-week arm, 31.2 weeks. And imagine paying that out when the claimant has not lost any time from work. It's terrible. The good thing is the new guidelines don't have that for that particular injury. They also talk about the, the meniscus excision, which is actually the surgery that we talked about in the hypothetical uh, in the early slide, right? They're taking away that floor, and I, I think it's helpful for us, right? Because a meniscus tear, a rotator cuff tear, they may be our more commonplace injuries, right? If you're going to have trauma to that site, then there is a chance that objective testing will show some kind of issue that is a result of that trauma, right? But we want to avoid cases that don't actually affect the claimant's ability to do work. So it is a nice change to see that the new guidelines don't have that automatic floor. I do have a couple more there that I won't go over due to time, but sure if, you know, surely if you do have questions on those specific injuries, I'll be glad to uh, reach out to you via email or in the questions if we do have time. Okay, uh, the SLU award is what it's going to be once the decision uh, or once, once the doctors and the litigation has taken place, right? But that doesn't mean that all of our avenues will be exhausted. It's, it's still the same in terms of what we can do when the award is the judge, right? You can determine if we want to appeal to the board panel or even to the appellate division. Uh, we can stipulate to a schedule loss of use and close the case that way. You can also full and final a section, uh, do a section 32 settlement in which you would close medical as well which is preferable, and there is always that problem of Section 15.3v. We have this even with the 2012 guidelines where if you get that 50% threshold of the schedule loss of use, you might be looking at a case where the claimant is going to pursue classification. And this is a really, really important point to, to consider when dealing with that. Non-schedule awards, although we know that the new guidelines only have to deal with schedule loss of use, the 2018 iteration of the guidelines do talk about when a schedule injury can become non-schedule. And these are more specific as opposed to what we used to have with the 2012 guidelines when we would actually litigate this and it would be more of a, a, a discussion and debate as to whether a schedule would be non-schedule. Here, there are more opportunities now for a claimant to request a non-schedule award. And there are a variety of them. It's a whole list. They're in chapter one. But I point, pointed this one out just because I thought it was very, uh, it, it was well, it was the first one, and it will actually probably lead to some litigation, right? Joint inflammation, acute or a chronic, x-ray evidence of degenerative arthritis, and a finding that no improvement has been made after all modalities of care have been exhausted. Think about your cases, maybe even in your case population now, 
where you have prior indemnity reaching a point that is so high that a likely schedule is going to be eclipsed by the prior payments and not move anything to the claimant. If I'm a claimant's attorney that is looking to extend that case, I'm probably going to try and argue this point. Now, just because these will, uh, the if these are apparent, are now it's now applicable to go from schedule to non-schedule, it doesn't mean we can't fight whether these uh, exist, right? Sometimes there may be degenerative arthritis, but we would have to argue that it's not causally related, for example, right? If a claimant's doctor said that there's no improvement, we would have to show that there is improvement. Similar things like that, but it's more to just let you know that it could be part of a fight uh, down the road. Okay, uh, we had the hypothetical in the first uh, couple slides of this presentation. This is the same exact thing, and we're going to use the 2018 guidelines to see how much that has changed, right? Let me remind you, it's only an isolated case, so we can't assume that the outcome of this particular accident in this particular case would be similar across the board or correlative to other non-similar injuries. And again, uh, we do have this handout that we sent in an email earlier today that you can also follow along. But it's basically the same thing, left knee meniscal tear that was arthroscopically repaired. I've been talking for a while, so I have to sound that one out. $1,500 average weekly wage, January 1st, 2017, Accident with a 100 degree flexion loss and 24 weeks at $864.32 paid previously in prior indemnity. Okay, so we know from the past slide that an excision for the meniscal tear is not going to give you that baseline floor of 7.5 to 10%. Now, if we calculate just the range of motion loss, we're only going to get 10% for that meniscal tear, right? Or, or based on, not, not for the meniscal tear, I'm sorry, it's a 10% for the range of motion loss. So 10% for a leg is 28.8 weeks. Remember that the total schedule loss of use for the leg is 288. If we take the same prior indemnity and subtract it from the gross money in this case, which is a shade under 25,000, we come out with new money moving of $4,148 and some change. So if we compare that to the previous example, it's a very, very large difference. So I hope that has articulated what we have in terms of 2012 versus 2018. And I'm now gonna take some questions. Okay. Okay, the first question is from Mark. And it talks about, Mark asks, will a schedule loss of use automatically be transferred to loss of wage earning capacity if they meet those criteria? I guess I want to be a little bit more clear. So I, th I thank you for that question, Mark. Uh, the possibility of going from SLU to LWEC, it's, it's not just an easy thing to do, right? Those iterations of x-ray evidence of degenerative arthritis, uh, acute or chronic inflammation, and um, no improvement after all modalities of care have been exhausted, we, we don't want to assume that that's very easy. We just want to know that they're possible. And, when we prepare for that obstacle, we know that we are best equipped to fight it. More claimants attorneys might actually think that I can close a case quickly on schedule loss of use as opposed to LWEC, because in LWEC, you're going to keep a claim open and really fight. Those cases are actually more likely to be appealed by our side because there's a lot of factors that go into play before determining that final number. So I appreciate that question, Mark. 
Next question is from Cindy, and she asks about the change in re replace total knee replacement. Oh, it's actually, that's actually a question I got the first webinar. So uh, let me let me go back to that slide. In the old guidelines, right at the bottom, what I have here is that the average total knee replacement case would end up with a 50 to 55% schedule. And that's actually in the 2012 guidelines, the special considerations in that section if you want to access that. And actually, before I even get into that, the 2012 guidelines are still available for uh, review. So if you wanna do your own comparisons, that's uh, certainly at your disposal. But essentially gave a high floor for a total knee replacement, and that's even if the claimant went back to work. What we have in the new guidelines is a more specific delineation of the outcome of the surgery, which actually makes more common sense, right? If the surgery helped the claimant, we're not gonna be compensating them for such a high schedule of loss of use, right? If there was a good outcome, which I would like to argue, if they're doing the same pre-accident job, same duties, no restrictions, then you're gonna be looking at a range closer to the 35% number. Now, if they're out of work and they're really, really struggling with it, then you're gonna be looking at a higher number. So that's gonna be a little bit more of a change. It does incorporate range of motion loss into those categories. So I think it's actually helpful as opposed to just saying, well, the average TKR is about 50 to 55%. I think that actually pushes doctors to find a percentage in that range without, without actually doing the work to get there. Okay, go back to the questions. All right, so Jim asks, if the claimant has a meniscal tear without the surgery, what happens? Okay, so that's actually a good question, right? The, my hypothetical, the claimant had a meniscal tear that required the surgery. And what's good is that even the old guidelines made sure that they had the surgery to give them that floor, right? So if they don't have the surgery, you're probably gonna be more uh, looking more like the second example where uh, the range of motion loss is the only thing that's considered. But you also wanna contrast that with the rotator cuff tear because with or without surgery was a difference in the 2012 guidelines, right? So without the surgery, you'd get that baseline floor. It didn't matter if you went through the surgery. And in the 2018 guidelines, there's nothing about the rotator cuff tear because what they're assessing is the range of motion loss, especially since we're already compensating the claimant on the temporary disability side for the lost time from work and the cost of the procedure itself. It makes sense. Okay, uh, questions are piling up. Uh, it looks like I have about 10 more. Uh, I can't get them to get them right now because we're, we're already past that 30 minute limit. Uh, I will respond to everybody by email. That's a promise. Uh, you can follow up with me if need be, but I'm gonna make sure that I get back to you. Uh, but for now, I wanna thank everybody for attending this webinar. It is a special addition to our monthly webinar series, and I'm very happy that uh, it's the, one of the more highly attended ones. If you have any questions, my email address and phone number was given to you in the slides, and it should be available to you in that email that we sent earlier this morning as well. And thanks again.